<laughs> Let me hear. Say it one more time. You're listening to Failure. Failure. Failure 101. Failure. Failure. Wait. Fail your. Fail your. Failure. 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 I can't say that word. Right. You're listening to Paul Elmore. Perfect. Thanks again for coming to week, is this four? Yes. We've been doing this for four weeks already. Holy moly. Um, we have four more weeks. We are halfway through and we're done with tonight. Um, if I remember correctly, next week we talk about conflict. Does that sound right? When people make mistakes, oftentimes it results in conflict. Um, the week after that, we talk about forgiveness. When people make mistakes, sometimes it's hard to forgive them or sometimes it's hard to forgive ourselves. Week seven is all about grieving when mistakes just can't be fixed. There's nothing that we can do about it and we have to learn how to grieve the process. Um, and then week eight is going to be my break. I get to sit back and I get to listen to stories my question is, how many of you are actually considering risking things, trying things, being willing to fail? We have one. So you get to speak the whole time. Okay, we got two, three. So we might have some more stories here to hear from. I look forward to if you guys are willing to share what those risks are, what the thing is you are hoping to change. I would love to hear your stories. <clears throat> for a couple reasons. One is we're in a room filled with lots of good teachers on failure. We've all made mistakes and we can all learn from each other. And so to have one person kind of bring only their perspective kind of limits it. So it's going to be fun to open it up and hear from each one of you. Um, as well as this is your community, I hope. I hope that you have found a place here that you can build relationships that you can walk for longer term with each other. And as you do that, you get to be known a little bit more, a little bit better. And the depth of intimacy, the security, the um, connection that happens in there makes it very good to start being seen, to being known. And I would strongly encourage each one of you to actually practically kind of put that into practice, not just make it theory, but to try it out and see what happens. It is scary. I'm not sure if I mentioned that yet. It is scary, but it is good. Usually the best things in life cost us something. It might cost you whatever that is, but try it. Don't get left alone. <clears throat> Quick review real fast and we'll jump into tonight. Uh, last week, eh, we'll get to that in a second. Where have we been? I'm not sure if that's new information. Remember week one, we talked about that. What does it say? We all make mistakes. Is that correct? Does, is that up for argument? Is anyone here not quite tracking with that? Everyone here has made mistakes. Is that okay for me to ask? Okay. We've all failed. We've all made mistakes which makes us have very good company. 
I have to figure out how to click this. <clears throat> Those failures hurt because of pre-existing beliefs rooted in what? Week two. Remember what that was? Shame and guilt. Very good. Shame, primarily. Shame is that belief that we are inherently bad. We are flawed in some way. Um, and those pre-existing beliefs are often highlighted or take root in our failures. <clears throat> Doink. Opposite of shame is guilt. What is guilt? Yes. Again, I don't want to make you calloused to making mistakes. I want you to hurt over them, but I want it to be appropriate hurt. I want it to be healthy hurt. I don't want it to be inappropriate. So instead of shame, we um, wrestle with guilt. When we fail, we often seek more last week. Control, very good. Security comes from control oftentimes. We like to know what's happening. We try to have more power. So we seek more control, which again can leave us um, with very little freedom because if you have to inspect every chair you sit in to make sure that it's going to not fall apart, then um, you're doing an awful lot of homework all the time before you sit down. Living with trust, living with faith is very freeing. And that's what I want for each one of you. We let go of control. When we let go of control, we... <clears throat> this is last week as well. Yes. yes, thank you. We risk things. Wow, fantastic. This is why we do a little review real fast, make sure everyone's tracking. This is where we've been. Um, when we let go of control, we actually have to risk things, which means there is a potential for loss. Tonight, we are going to finish up what we didn't quite get to last week, which is what does healthy risk look like? I want to make sure that we identify some of those things, but we ran out of time last week because we did. So when we let go of control, we start risking things. Tonight, here's where we're going tonight. Again, how to live with healthy risk. But in reality, we're gonna wrap that up at the end of tonight. So before we do um, healthy risk taking, we're gonna talk about grace and mercy. Um, some very important concepts that if we can understand what grace and mercy is and actually live it out, our lives tend to look very different. We're gonna talk about why we hate grace, a theory. I'll be open for debate if we want to wrestle with this, but it's my presupposition, it's my theory that most of us don't like grace. We hate grace. We're going to look at Romans 3 and Romans 8 um, a lot tonight. We're also going to look at a little bit of Romans 5 if we can. Come on in. See, they messed it up for you. You can't sneak in real incognito anymore, can you? So we're going to look at Romans 3 and Romans 8. Um, and that's where we're going tonight. Before we um, jump in, again, how about we start off a little prayer? Would that be okay? So that we can honor our Creator. Oh, Father in heaven, it is nice again to uh, serve you, to spend time with you, um, learning about what you've provided for us, how you see us, and how we can live according to that. Calm our hearts, 
tonight from the burdens that each one of us are carrying from our day-to-day struggles. Let us be able to hear your voice again and know that you are God. Thank you and in your name, amen. All right. Can anyone give me a working definition of mercy? There's kind of a couple standards out there, and I'm just curious what, what they are, if you guys know what they are. What is a working definition for mercy? To spare someone from a just punishment. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it was similar to one that I've heard in Christian circles. Which is? Not receiving what we deserve. Not receiving what we justly deserve. Exactly. So, um, not getting something that we do deserve. It's the person who's been convicted. They're now standing before the judge, and the judge is passing down sentence. And what do they say? You know, have mercy on me, have mercy. Please do not give me what I justly deserve. I, I, don't want, I don't want what is rightfully owed me. That is mercy. Grace, on the other hand, what is grace? Thank you. We are going to getting something that we do not deserve. That is the idea of, well, we're going to go into a little bit more here because when we, when we see the details of how grace works, uh, if there's one week that you didn't want to miss of this whole series, this is going to be it. Because if we can wrap our brains around it, we are going to be doing really, really well. Really, really well. well let me get something I forgot here real fast. Why do we hate grace? Can anyone give me an idea of why we might hate grace? <clears throat> Say again? Because I didn't get it. Because you didn't get it. If you get something you don't deserve, why didn't I get it? Fairsies. Yeah, that's my kids. He got a cookie. How come I didn't get a cookie? Yeah, Fairsies. Why we hate grace. If we accept it, we accept the fact that we are helpless and cannot do it on our own. That is, gain his love or earn his love. We are helpless to do it without Christ. Grace is something that we need and we are helpless. And if we need it, we are at the mercy of God. Yeah. And evil has taught us that we cannot trust God and bam, we are right back in the garden. And there we are. Wow. Let's just close in prayer. <laughs> That's good. I, I, I wrote it down. I had my, you know, the iPhone. No, Email I just, it. I <laughs> That's good. Voice, yeah. Isn't that nice? Voice note person. What do we do without iPhones and voice notes. voice notes and everything else like that? That's pretty much as close as I can get to, um, I think, why we hate grace. 
The reason we talk about grace after last week, which is about control, is because grace flies in the face of control. We like to earn our own way. We like to earn our own acceptance. I have many clients that, as I sit down with them, and they're saying, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. If I can just do X, Y, or Z in good enough ways, then I will have earned, proved myself, whatever. And then I can find some sort of rest or peace within myself because I've done it right. It flies in the face of grace. We, we despise being out of control. Grace cannot be earned. It is diametrically opposed. You can't earn grace. It is only something that can be given. If you earn it, what's that called? A wage, yes. You have just exchanged one thing for something else. And um, if you don't agree on the wages, then you might get shortchanged or you might get you know, an abundance of stuff, but it's still earned. It's based on some sort of level of performance. It can't be improved upon. You can't get um, better grace, shall we say. Grace is grace is grace. Um, now, what you might get might be, let's say, uh, different than someone else because their story is different. So grace exhibited on me might be according to my story and grace according to you might be according to your story, but it's still grace. It's still unearned on both of our parts. And so we can't really improve upon it or make it better. Again, we have no control in that. We have to accept it straight for what it is, which again, we don't like being out of control at all. Um, it can't be better than someone else's people. That competitive piece, please. It's not like, ha ha, I, I got better <laughs> grace than you. Mm, no, doesn't quite work out that way. And grace cannot be prevented. You ever think about that? You can't stop me from giving you grace. No matter how much power you want to have, you can't stop me from bestowing on you something else. It's completely out of our control. We are helpless when we are given grace. Again, for people who like control, that freaks us out. That is probably some of the scariest stuff that we could even conceive of because it's like, no, 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 no. I, I, I need to have some sort of power in this. So this is why we hate grace. Yeah. Yeah, I have a question on that. I like that concept. I'm trouble wrapping my mind around it in terms of grace is something like where one person receives something that they don't deserve. Yep. I'm pretty good at not receiving something. I can put the hand up and say, no, I don't have to accept that gift. Yeah. And so I know that's an attempt to control, but how does that fit into what you're saying? Yeah. <coughs> Ladies, don't listen for a minute. Let me just talk to the men in the group here. Guys, we tend to be really, really bad receivers. We, um, for whatever reason, we've learned it, we've adapted to it but men especially, give us something to do so that we can prove our worth. <clears throat> this um, didn't become quite as clear as it did one shocking afternoon up on our challenge course um, several years ago. <clears throat> I was with a men's group. 
probably about 20 guys, and we were doing what's called the wall. The wall is about 15 feet high, about ceiling height, maybe a little bit taller here. And the object is to get all 20 guys over this wall. You've seen them in, in, in um, uh, army commercials and things like that. But this is, um, there's parameters about who can go over first, who can go over last, and all those things, and how many people can be on top lifting, and how many people can be on bottom lifting, and who can lift. And so we've got 20 guys who are doing this, this exercise. And we got everyone through. The event was successful, and everyone was having a really, really you know, good time, high fives all around, until I noticed one guy who was kind of not quite outside of the group, but he was definitely detached from the group. He was standing just a little bit on the outside, and his head was hanging down. And after the end of each event, the events are designed to um, be experiential learning um, kind of things where we will kind of what did we learn about ourselves in this event. And so as we kind of debrief this event, I asked the, uh, this person kind of what's going on. And he sat there for a few seconds with his head hanging down very, very quietly. And finally looked up after the whole group kind of got quiet and there was tears in his eyes. And um, I said, tell me what's going on. He says, I hate this event. I hate this event because I can stand all day on the bottom and lift people and lift people and lift people, but I hated, I hated being lifted and relying on other people to get me over the wall. I wanted to do it myself. And that's a fairly common kind of reaction to the event. It triggers some of that, especially within men. But then the story continued and he says, I, what I hate about that so much is because my father was the exact same way. And when I was a teenager, he was diagnosed with cancer. And instead of being a burden on the family, he opted to end his life. And the anger I have at him for doing that, because it took away my chance to relate to him, to, to have him be my father. He took something from me because he didn't want to be a burden on the family. And I didn't want to be like my father, and here I am, hating having to be carried, and I don't want to be a burden on anyone else. Men, we don't like being a burden. That is a learned skill set, I'm going to suggest. Isn't that strange? We have to learn how to receive. Most of us think, remember back to kids and saying, you know, presents, yeah, I love getting presents. But then somewhere we learn that we should earn it in some way, and it skews this perspective. A healthy balance is knowing when to give, when to help, when to be that person, and when to be helped, when to receive, when not to be so strong. Again, the guy with the back problems who doesn't like laying in bed because he doesn't want to be lazy, he has to earn. Remember that story? I got to earn my keep. I got to do the dishes. I got to do all those things or else I won't be loved. So these lessons get entrenched. Go Jimmy first. Yeah. I know what mercy and leniency feels like. Yeah. What does grace feel like? Oh, what a great question. Can you just give me a small example that maybe I can relate to in my life? If the rest of tonight doesn't answer the question, would you ask it again before we're done? Would that be okay? Yes. Can, I, can I defer that out? Because that is exactly where we're going tonight, is I want you to be able to taste it. 
I want you to know it. Not know it. I want you to know it here. The gospel is based on some of this. Let me um, see if I can kind of point out how fear of failure and grace kind of intermingle. Our, our faith is based upon the idea that we are eventually going to stand before an all-knowing God and he is going to expose all of our fears, all of our insecurities, all of our mistakes, all of our flaws. If we live according to his grace that we have given us, that experience is going to be redemptive. If we don't live according to grace, believing that we have to earn our way or do enough of whatever it is, that experience is going to be terrifying. Because, again, it's the other client that constantly is wrestling with, have I done enough? Have I surrendered enough? Have I committed enough? Have I done enough of, again, whatever it is to be seen as worthy? And that creates this fear, that creates this distress within us. And I think if we read through scriptures, I don't think we're called to have that spirit of fear, that spirit of timidity. We're supposed to be able to live with peace and comfort in the knowledge that we are loved and accepted. So, <clears throat> Get used to it now here on earth. Get used to being seen. Get used to being exposed so that when you get to heaven, it's going to be like, oh yeah, I've done this before. No problem here. Here I am. Take me as I am. They ought to write a song by that. That'd be pretty good. Um, yeah. What does grace conflict look like? We hate grace. <clears throat> so what does this conflicted grace within us look like? Um, you might know you have a hard time with grace, accepting grace. If um, just accepting that we are valuable, worthy, loved, and okay is, ha is a hard time. If it's just hard to even get our mind wrapped around that we are actually okay, that we are accepted and loved the way we are, if you have a hard time being able to do that, <clears throat> then the concept of grace is kind of that's, this, that's what you're wrestling with, is how do I live practically in grace? <clears throat> Man, I'm sorry for my throat tonight, guys. You know that grace is probably an issue for you if you um, constantly need to do something. You have a hard time resting and being and sitting. It's the Mary Martha dilemma. Remember that? Lord, Lord, she's not helping. <clears throat> and what did he say? Get up and help, right? Is that how mind it plays out? <laughs> In essence, mind your own business, yeah. Come, rest, be, just sit. If you have a hard time being present and resting in, in other relationships or even just within, within yourself, then grace might be an issue for you. Might be something that you're wrestling through. Or this grace conflict um, might show up because you have difficulty extending grace to other people, being gracious. 
See how those words tie in? If you find yourself being fairly critical of other people's uh, behaviors, motives, intentions, things like that, and it's hard to extend grace towards them, then the way I understand it is if, if it's hard to accept it with yourself, it's hard to be able to grant that to someone else. So if you recognize that there might be this criticalness, this judgmentalness within you, then grace is probably something that is, again, kind of, kind of wrestle with and get your mind around. All those making sense? Fantastic. <sighs> Wrapping our head around what this looks like, Jimmy. Um, once upon a time, there was a landowner, and he had this beautiful, beautiful hillside estate. Acres and acres and acres to some of the finest property. House with rooms and rooms and rooms and rooms and rooms and he had his own children he was happily married and he had several of his own kids and they were well loved they were well cared for they were um they were good kids it was a good family and the father the landowner of this property had a burdened heart for the orphans in the city living at the bottom of the hill. Every day he'd go into work and he would see these orphaned boys and girls who had nobody to care for them, living on the street in dirt and filth. Many of them tried to steal from him. Many of them tried to rob him. Many of them he watched stealing from, from the vendors and the carts and all those kinds of things. And he knew their existence. And so he decided that he didn't want to see these orphans live this way anymore. So the next day he comes into town and he looks around and he's had his eye on one particular young boy. He walks up to him and says, I've noticed you, I've seen you in the street many times. Would you be willing to take a walk with me? Would you be willing to just um, uh, stroll uh, up to my property up at the top of the hill here and so they walked for an hour got to the gates of his property and as they strolled he was talking about you know I've seen you stealing and I've seen you you know being mean to other kids and I've seen you doing all these things and it burdens my heart I am heartbroken that you have had to do this just to survive in life I want you to live differently I would like to adopt you. I want to make you my child. Now what that means is this. You can live here with us. You, don't, you no longer have to live in the street. You have your own room. You can learn how to accept my love, accept my parenting, accept my discipline. And you don't have to do anything. I sought you out and I want to make you my child. What that means is this as well. When I die, you have an equal share of the estate. How about that? From, from nothing to an equal share in the inheritance. You are my heir. All you need to do 
is say yes. And if you're going to be my son, I will love you unconditionally. I've seen how you are, and I love you already enough to adopt you, to bring you into my home. And while you're here, I want to help you learn how to relate best with other people, which means I'm going to have to teach you because you've learned some bad habits, and I'm going to have to discipline you. And it's not because I want to take away your fun. It's because I want you to live fulfilled. I want you to live with freedom. Would you submit yourself to that discipline, to, that, to this agreement? Would you like to be my son? He made this speech over and over and over every day. He'd come and he'd bring back more boys and more girls after seeing what they lived in. Some said, yes, I would love to be part of your family. And they have learned and grown and changed and enjoyed the freedom that comes from that. Others had said, no, thank you. And they continue to live on the streets. Others have said, yes, I will be your son. They went through all the paperwork. They've, the adoption is complete, and they lived for a while. And then they got distracted, and they returned back to the streets, and they are living on the streets still. Still sons, still heirs, but not enjoying the benefits that come from that sonhood. Grace is when we have done nothing and we are loved unconditionally and made heirs. That is the story of our faith. It's unique to Christianity. We can't earn it. And again, many of us like that little boy saying, well, there's got to be a catch. What's the catch here? I, you know, he's going to make me do this or he's going to make me do that. And, you know, I better, or I better do this or I better do that so that he will love me more. I didn't understand some of these concepts, ladies and gentlemen, until I became a parent. Um, when you become a parent, when you have four kids living at home, you start to understand heavenly relationship differently than when you are not a parent. There are times when my children drive me crazy. There are times when I wonder if they're my children, okay? Because they're just, I can't stand them sometimes. But they are always my children and my love for them doesn't wane. My liking of them wanes, you know, depending on, on what's going on. But my love for them is always unconditional. And when you've spent years trying to be good enough as a Christian um, so that you can finally kind of relax, you never really find that. When you start to believe in the relationship that is Christianity, not the, not the behavior or the requirements to get into the club. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. When you enjoy the relationship that grace brings that brings freedom, It brings all sorts of amazing things with that. When the boy is adopted, he can't become more of a son. I mean, okay, you, you're more of my son than this is, no, they all have that equal share of inheritance. 
They are all sons or daughters. You can't earn better standing or better love from the Father. Does that make sense? Um, he has the same rights. Again, when we hear heir, we don't, we don't use that term very much in our world currently at the moment. Um, inheritance might be better, but we usually think of that around death, around, you know, wills, about the trusts and those kinds of things. But we have an inheritance. Romans talks about it. It is <clears throat> this idea that we can live with this amazing hope and freedom that we never have. We have an eternity with our creator. It's an amazing inheritance to, to share in. He's an heir. Questions at all around any of that? All right. Does that make sense to me? Okay. What I want to do is um, I want to look at Romans 3, 20 to 28 here as I was doing some preparation for this portion of kind of the uh, series. This passage comes to life in ways that, actually all of Romans, it made me want to get back into and study Romans a lot more because it's just chock full of so many amazing truths, so many amazing realities that if we can understand them again, we tend to become different. Grace is easy to in in intellectualize, is that the word? Intellectualize, it's difficult to experientially live out. So I want to talk about, again, the practical, how do we live some of it out? And I think we do that by understanding it differently as well. So let's look at Romans here real fast. Here's what it says. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. When I bought my first car, when I was 17-ish um, or so, um, I bought it from a police officer. My mother worked for the San Diego Police Department, and one of the officers um, in, the, in the force there was selling a 1988 Chevy Blazer. I named her Jezebel because I hated this car. It was a mess. But it was a great car at the time. So I'm driving around town for a couple weeks in, in Jezebel, having a good time. She's good so far. She hasn't broken down one of the many times that she did after that. Um, and as I'm driving down um, one of the main roads in San Diego, the um, police lights flash on in my rearview mirror. And I'm going, oh my gosh, what did I do? I think I'm, I'm driving the speed limit. I don't think I made any illegal turns. And I get this nervousness because I'd never been stopped before. It's my first car, new driver, and I'm going, oh man, I'm dead. My parents are going to kill me. I'm going to get stopped. I pull over. Cop gets out of his car. He walks up the walk slowly to the, to the driver's side, roll down the window, and it's the police officer that I bought the car from, okay, the previous owner. And he saw the car driving around, and he said, hey, just want to see how the car's working for you. You know, you're enjoying it, you're liking it a lot. <laughs> I'm going, oh my gosh, you're killing me here, Jones. I mean, I, my heart was pounding, and he's just, you know, wanting to shoot the breeze, you know, because he wanted to make sure the car was doing all right. I wish he would have asked me that a year later, but he didn't. So 
Um, police officers rarely stop us to say, hey, just want to let you know, doing a great job driving. Thank you very much for being safe. Well done, right? <laughs> police officers don't do that. Highway Patrol doesn't do that. Police officers do stop you for one reason only. What is that? Busted, yeah, here's a ticket for you, or a warning, or whatever that is. They are there to demonstrate or to point out how you made a mistake. That is their job. That's the job of the law, is to point out um, how wrong you have been. Um, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Through the law... We are now saying, okay, I've made a mistake. I just got pulled over by the Bible police, and I'm now aware of how I've just sinned. That is what the law is, and that is what the, the Jewish um, nation lived under for centuries, okay? From Abraham, oh, no, from Moses, sorry, all the way through to Christ is this, is this law. And that's why the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, all those people prided themselves on saying, I am following the law. I haven't got stopped for any tickets. I am observing it the best. I am more righteous than thou. And that's how they measured worth, is how good you were. It's all about to change. Now we see how God does make us acceptable to him. This is just verse after verse after verse. This is Romans 3. Um, the law doesn't work anymore. It doesn't make us righteous. All the law does is it points out, by the way, you're screwing up. By the way, you're screwing up. By the way, you're screwing up. It does not help us become better. It just points out how wrong we are. Um, God made a different way. Now we see how God does make us acceptable to him. If the law doesn't work, here's how God's going to make us finally acceptable before, before him. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. A little reminder of our state. By the way, we've all messed up. Just thought I'd put that in there to remind you that <laughs> none of us have done it right. But God treated, uh, treats us much better than we deserve. We could just sit on that phrase all night long, okay? That would actually be closer to, shall we say, mercy or grace. Grace. Or I heard of mercy. What is it? God treats us much better than we deserve. Mercy could be it can be either, depending on how you're looking at it. He's going to go the grace route, though. But we have sinned. And by the way, God treats us much better than we deserve. We're all getting a get-out-of-jail-free card. And because of Christ Jesus, he freely accepts us and sets us free from our sins. God sent Christ to be our sacrifice. Christ offered his life's blood so that by faith in him, we could come to God. Is it by us, by our doings, by our skill set that earns the acceptance that makes us acceptable before God? What is it? What is it? By Christ, by something that Christ did, by his actions, not by ours, but by his. 
Again, for those of us who need or like control, this is hard to, to accept because it's saying we are taking it out of your hands. This is why the Pharisees had such a hard time with Christ because he's saying, yeah, all that righteousness stuff that you're doing, yeah, not sure that that's quite hitting the point anymore. And so they hated him. They hated him for it. it flew in the face of everything that they were teaching. And God did this to show that in the past, he was right to be patient and forgive sinners. He has every right to smite us, to use an Old Testament term. He has every right, and yet he chooses to be patient with us. Isn't that amazing? Instead of saying, I caught you, you're busted, I finally have evidence to prove it, and now I'm going to drill you. It is, I know what you've done, you're still a sinner, and I'm going to be patient. I'm going to wait. I'm going to still be loving. What a miraculous concept that is. If we truly live it out, if we can say, wow, I messed up again, and I'm still accepted, and I messed up again, and I'm still accepted. He's patient with us. In the past, evidence. In the, in the current now, he's patient with us. This also shows that God is right when he accepts people who have faith in Jesus. He accepts those who have fallen short of his glory. He accepts us. He accepts you. You've fallen short and you're accepted. You've fallen short and you're accepted. You've fallen short. You haven't made it. And you're accepted. He's right when he accepts people who have faith in Jesus. What is left for us to brag about? Nah, again, here's the bad news, okay? Not a thing. It is because we obeyed some law? No. It is because of faith. Grace takes away the right or the ability to say, look at me, I've earned it. This is why we hate grace, because we can't claim credit for it. It is by Christ, by what Christ did for us. It was by faith. It is the, I'm going to believe that what you did is, is sufficient and adequate for me, and that's not me anymore. We see that people are acceptable to God because they have faith and not because they obey the law. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to be acceptable before God, stop trying. Stop trying to earn it. You can't that energy is better spent in other places. If you ache to know that you're good enough, if you want to be accepted finally, then stop trying to earn it. 
or prove it. This is a perspective shift. It is a it is a, an ability to believe something without any evidence. What's that called? Faith. We like knowing what to do. We wish there was one more thing to do. And I can't give that to you. I can't give it to you. It begins, it begins with the concept of knowing that you are acceptable. Right here, right now, with all of the messes that are in this room, you're acceptable. My hope is, is that you land on that note rather than, shoot, I wish I could do more and I'm frustrated by that. I hope that this brings good news. I hope this brings peace. I hope this brings rest for you finally rather than turmoil. Romans 8, Romans 8, 31 to 39. What can we say about all this? If God is on our side, can anyone be against us? God did not keep back his own son, but he gave him for us. If God did this, won't he freely give us everything else? Do we see ourselves the way God sees us? If God sees us as valuable enough to sacrifice his son for us, why don't we see ourselves that way? If God is on our side, can anyone be against us, including ourselves? <laughs> including all the scripts that we have playing over and over and over in our heads that says we aren't good enough, we're not good enough, we have to earn it. If it was only for this, it was only for that. If God is for us, who can be against us? He didn't hold back anything, including his son. If God says his chosen ones are acceptable to him, can anyone bring charges against them? Or can anyone condemn, condemn them? Rhetorical question, because he gives you the answer right there. What's the answer? No. no, indeed. We are chosen, and yet we have this dilemma within us that we constantly are trying to remind God, by the way, this is how screwed up I am. This is all the bad things I've done, and this is why you probably shouldn't accept me. This is why, this is why, this is why. And he's going, yeah, you can try to bring those charges against yourself, other people can try to bring the charges against you, all of those things. Um, but does it work? Am I going to, as, am I God going to see them as condemned? Am I going to see you as condemned? And his answer is, no, it's just never going to happen. It's, I already see you the way I see you, and you can't be convinced. You can't convince me anymore. Christ died and was raised to life, and now he is at God's right side, speaking to him for us. The way I've heard this explained is, we make a mistake, we fail in some way, and 
God's up there saying, that is unacceptable to me. There needs to be punishment. There needs to be wages for that behavior. And Christ is up there saying, actually, took care of it. We're all done. It's been paid for. And God goes, oh yeah, now I remember. Because he forgets a lot. Okay, he's old. Um, he's at God's right side speaking to him for us. We don't have to make this argument on our own. We got God incarnate making it to himself, which is weird. <clears throat> Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? Can trouble, suffering, and hard times, or hunger, and nakedness, or danger, and death, He's just rattling off things here. All right, let's, you, still, you still don't buy the argument. Let me just see if I can rattle off some things. Does it work? No. Does hunger? No. Does it thirst? No. Does death? No. Does nakedness? No. Can anything, can anything you've done separate you from the love of Christ? How about you? How about you? How about you? Is there anything that you've done that can separate you from the love of Christ. In everything, we have won more than a victory because of Christ who loves us. I am sure that nothing can separate us from God's love, not life or death, not angels or spirits, not the present or the future, and not powers above or powers below. Nothing in all creation can separate us from God's love for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Another long list of just everything that we have tried to throw his way, saying, I don't deserve it, I don't deserve it, I don't deserve it. Grace is not earned. You are loved freely. What if that's true? What if that is actually true, not just conceptually true? Here's what I want to ask real fast. Everyone close your eyes. I don't want you to have any distractions for a moment. Close your eyes for me, please. And I want you to think of the arguments you have made in your mind over and over and over again why you are not acceptable, why your failures, why your mistakes, why your fallibility, why your choices have kept you from being loved by yourself or by anybody else. I want you to see what those are in your life. What are the things you constantly accuse yourself of? And then I want you to see that father walk up to you and say, I know it all. I know the pain that you are carrying. I know the shame that this feels. And I want you just the way you are. And you Look, at, look up at him and you say, yeah, but, yeah, but. You just don't understand yet. Oh, I understand. 
I understand. I understand more than actually you know, because I know you better than you know yourself. And I still want you. While your eyes are still closed, I want you to know that this is not just a theoretical exercise, that this reality is available to you. And that it's still hard sometimes to believe that it's true because we're all saying, you know, we don't get something for nothing. Well, actually, in reality, we do. There's one. Whatever that thing is, I want you to look at Christ. I want you to look at him straight in the face and say, if you're not going to accuse me anymore, then... I'm going to decide to not accuse myself anymore. And I'm going to choose to see me the way that you see me. And I don't understand why, and I don't understand how, and it doesn't make sense at all. But I'm going to live by faith, and I'm going to believe that it is true, and that if it is true, then I have nothing to fear anymore. Who can condemn us? Who can condemn us? Because if God Almighty, if our Creator accepts me, what does it matter what anyone else thinks? When you're ready, you can open your eyes if you like. So this is what it feels like? Just a little bit just a little bit. If we were to go back to Romans 3 again, the last passage in that, in that passage says, we see that people are acceptable to God because they have faith and not because they obey the law. We see that people are acceptable to God. When we experience grace, when we are able to truly see ourselves accurately, we can see people accurately. We can see the flaws in other people accurately. We can live with graciousness. We see that people are acceptable to God because they have faith and not because they obey the law. The practical side of understanding grace is it changes the way we relate to each other because no longer are we condemning or judgmental or, or accusatory or mightier than thou or holier than thou or anything else like that. It says, wow, I am a mess and you're a mess and welcome to the club. We have hats. Here you go. And I'm going to love on you because I was loved. Ladies and gentlemen, there are many people in the world who do not or have not experienced that kind of unconditional love and they still wander around scared and nervous and worry that nobody will ever love them. 
we make it easier. We make it easier for people to know what perfect grace and love is when we first love them the way they are. And we can only do that because we have been loved by a perfect God first. People are messy. People are inconvenient. People are rude. People make mistakes. People have failures all the time. And we can either be those types of believers who point out their flaws or the policemen and say, by the way, here's how you screwed up and here's how you screwed up and here's how you screwed up. Or we can come alongside them and say, how's that working for you? Obviously, you're working out something and trying to make something happen in your life. Let me tell you my story. Let me tell you what unconditional love is. See if that changes something for them. There's a practical side of that. Failure, this is Failure 101. The class is on mistakes and failures. We fear failure because we lose perspective, because we forget what the truth is. If we have the right perspective, if we have God's perspective, nothing can separate us from his love. If we have that perspective, then we accept ourselves and failure is no longer a make it or break it experience in our lives. If we truly have the, the right perspective, when we lose that perspective, when we believe the lies, that's when we spend time condemning ourselves. That's when we spend time reminding not only ourselves, not only our creator, but those around us just how bad we are. Sometimes it's in words, sometimes it's in actions. When we lose that perspective. Again, I wish I had the ability to teach each of you how not to fail, but I can't teach that class because I haven't figured it out myself yet. When I do, I'll put it on the website or something, I'll let you know, okay? But I just haven't figured out that class. Instead, when you fail, don't lose perspective. Begins there. Is that making sense? Questions at all about any of that? All right, everyone take a deep breath for me. What a weird faith we have, isn't it? You know, everything else says, earn it, do this, do that, do all these things, and then maybe. And yet, what we so inherently love, this freedom that comes with grace, <laughs> it's hard to live out. I get it. This is the dilemma. Again, I don't have, I don't have the magic bullet to say, here's how to live it out much, much easier. If you just do this, then it's all better. We are working out our salvation. But as we work it out, um, work it out with other people and see what happens. If it's okay, I want to go back to the um, risking, how to have healthy risk. And the reason I put it at the end of tonight is because some of the grace stuff is going to bleed into the um, trust and the control stuff. It all kind of, do you see how it's all intermingled, all kind of combined in there? Control and grace and trust and faith and risk and love and all those things. As a reminder, control is fear-based. Trust is vulnerability-based. 
when we are afraid, we need more control. We need to have more, um, we, have to, we have to have less, less opportunities for things to go wrong. And so we believe that if we have more control, then we will be safer. Trust is vulnerability-based. I'm going to put my trust and faith in someone else, knowing full well they might disappoint me. It's a hard thing to do. Hard thing to do. An individual's belief in and willingness to act on the basis of the words, actions, and decisions of another. That's the definition we're using for trust. I am going to not only put belief in, but I'm willing to act on the basis of the words, actions, and decisions of another. If that is what trust is, then that actually creates a pretty good model for what healthy risk-taking looks like. So for those who are, have either taken bad risks before and it hasn't turned out real well and so you're risk averse right now, or if you just don't typically take risks at all because you don't know what, what would be good, what would be bad, um, this, is, this is for you. Law is performance-based. Grace is love-based. Again, the police officer is going to stop you and say, how good you doing? How good you driving there? I'm sorry you went through that, that stop sign a little bit too fast. Here's a very big ticket. I've got a buddy who just, you know, did a rolling stop, and it's an expensive ticket. So if you're in Milwaukee, don't do that. Um, law is performance-based, and grace is love-based. doesn't matter what you've done. Simply because I love you, I accept you. Again, good news. Remember that? That's my car, BMW Gina. When we believe that we can heal, look at that, Band-Aids. When we believe that we can heal, we tend to be able to have more freedom because we don't have to be afraid of being hurt as much. So this capacity, this knowledge that if we get hurt, we will heal. That's the way God, our creator, has made us. That provides great freedom for us. Um, when to take a risk. There are three kinds of um, important things that if you take a risk with anybody or anything, um, you're going to want to make sure they have kind of these three things. Number one, they need to have the ability to follow through on what they promised. I can promise you right now that I'm going to take you on a uh, tour around the world. Would that be wise given I have a wife and four kids and a mortgage and all those other things? Do you think I can afford to take you on a tour around the world? Do I have the ability to do that? There you go. Okay, yeah, again, back to technology. I can't follow through on that promise. So if someone does not have the ability to follow through on what they promised, and it's good and wise to do your homework, have, do they actually have this skill set? Um, it's the, it's the uh, catch me if you can scenario. Remember that movie with Leonardo DiCaprio in it and this person who was just posing that as you know, person after person after person, but he didn't have the skill set. He couldn't back it up. He was very untrustworthy. He um, was very unwise to risk anything with him. Even though he was a very good liar, very good deceiver, um, he didn't have the ability to follow through. The person needs to have integrity. Integrity. 
do they actually follow through? Not only do they have the skill set, but um, do they actually follow through what they promised? So if I say, you know what, I'm going to take you on a tour around the world. Here we go. I got the money. Here's the cash right here. And we'll do it next week. And the next week comes and ah, we got to do it in two weeks. And you know what, we got to put it off till next month. Um, you know what, we'll get to it someday. If I'm not sticking to my word, if I don't have the integrity of following through, then it would be unwise to take any risk with me. Again, if there's any sort of uh, history or pattern, do your homework in whatever you are going to risk on here. You want to make sure that it has integrity. And finally, benevolence. Uh, benevolence is this idea that whatever this person is going to do is going to be in your best interest. You want to make sure that they aren't doing this for selfish behaviors, selfish reasons, and you are now being used or manipulated. Their actions, the, the again, whatever industry or whatever uh, situation you are doing that you need to risk, make sure that it has your best interest in mind. That will be very, very wise um, if you make sure that these three things are in sort of any risk that you take. Um, Questions at all about that? Is that making sense? Yeah. I just really like the way you contrast grace with control. Because often grace is, is, is contrasted with justice. Uh huh. And at least for me, um, grace uh, embodies both perfect justice and perfect mercy. Because grace ultimately is not a principle, but grace is the person, and mercy does triumph over justice. Yeah. But I just think it's beautiful to paint a picture of, of grace being this country um, that is love-based, that where perfect execution of justice and grace have been like an atomic explosion ex executed on the cross. Yeah. And I live in that freedom yeah. as opposed to the control. Because so much of my life, I really felt if I could control you, then I would be safe. Yep. That was not a winning strategy. No, <laughs> not usually long term. Wasn't sustainable. There you go. Yeah, long term. I'd like to um, point out a couple of random thoughts here. <laughs> I realize that actually I don't have them on the PowerPoint. I don't think so. Um, I'm just going to uh, say them off here. Didn't really know where to put them into the whole risk and control and grace and trust and all that. So here's just some random thoughts to kind of for you to chew on. Um, it's counterintuitive, but Admitting your mistakes makes you more trustworthy. Isn't that strange? When you admit your mistakes, when you admit your failures to either someone that it didn't affect or someone that it does affect, it makes you more trustworthy. Why do you think that is? Because you're owning it. Because you own it, yeah. But how does that make you more trustworthy? You're not putting it off on somebody else. You're being honest again. It tells the other person, I actually can trust this person to, to reveal you know, this, this weakness within them, and I can relax. I don't have to constantly be going, now, are they getting away with something? Have they not gotten away with something? Because it didn't work out last time, but they didn't admit it last time, so I'm not sure where they're at. I don't know all this. When you admit your mistakes, people go, oh, that's really nice. I can trust you. Yeah. It's reciprocal, but it's like, okay, then it's going to be yeah. okay for me. Yeah. 
to admit my mistake, my shortcoming, because I won't fear retribution. Question is, who goes first? There always needs that first stinking person to jump off that ledge first. And then it gets the ball rolling. That's why we're in a class like this, is because I want to see if I can give you a format to have it to know that everyone's jumping off the cliff. <laughs> Even though you might go first in whatever group you're talking in. I've got mistakes, you've got mistakes, you've got all these failures. And, and when we do that, it, we tend to draw closer to people rather than draw further away from them. Again, not 100%, but it tends to kind of naturally go in that way. There's two questions back there. Yeah. 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 We're going to spend a ton of time on that in the forgiveness week. Because forgiveness is different than um, reconciliation. And we're going to make a very important distinction between those things. Because I think sometimes those have been confused or misdirected in some of that. So we want to make sure that we treat those honestly. So, yeah. There's a All right. Perfect. Um, let's see. What else? The stupidest mistakes we make tend to be errors of omission, not commission, but omission. Um, the decision to do nothing means you're automatically denying yourself any opportunity of long-term gain. It's the whole, at the end of your life, people tend to look back and say, I wish I would have, rather than I wish I had done. When we don't risk, when we don't step out in faith or trust, we miss out on amazing opportunities. We miss out on, on things that could lead us to amazing places. Errors of omission tend to be more painful. Um, we touched on this one before, but self-confidence cannot be taught. It only comes from experiences that teach us that we are capable. Most of those experiences must come with a certain level of trial and error. That pyramid that we showed here several times before. Um, Okay, self-confidence cannot be taught, period. We have to learn by trial and error. Um, when we are born, we do not know much. We don't know hardly anything. Our entire life is about learning through trial and error. And if we expect us to know something before we have been taught it, we might be being unfair to ourselves. <laughs> Excuse me. We might be having expectations of ourselves that are a little bit unreachable. Give yourself permission to be a beginner. Does that sound familiar? Remember that last time or a couple times before? Give yourself permission to be a beginner, to try and fail and mess up and not be very good. Um, huh. One of my favorite quotes. Oh, yeah. We teach others how to treat us by the way we treat ourselves. Powerful, powerful thought. Um, I wrestle with the thought of never being inconvenienced. That's kind of my crack in my armor. That is the thing that always kind of confirms that negative belief of any failure or any 
any request I make, if it has any smattering of I am inconveniencing someone, I tend to pull back from that. And to work through that, I had to um, start trying things. For instance, I ran a little experiment. When people would call me up and say, hey, Paul, can we get some coffee? I'd like to you know, discuss something with you. My first inclination has been for years, sure, I would love to get together and meet with you. Um, I don't want to inconvenience you at all, so I'm going to drive across town to, to meet with you and spend some time with you because, you know, I want to be the good guy. Well, I want to be the good guy, but more actually is I just don't want to inconvenience you because then you might not like me. Really selfish motives. So to work through this, I ran a little experiment and I told myself that I am not allowed to travel further than five miles from my office to meet anybody. So now it is, hey, can we get some coffee? You know what, I would love to get some coffee with you, but I need to, um, we need to have it at my office or we need to have it at the Starbucks right by my place here. Is that gonna work out? And again, like kind about it and everything like that. And the oddest thing happens. <laughs> Not only do they say, sure, okay, but when, when we sat down, it happened more than once. It happened more than once so much that it actually started to be this trend. They would start to say, you know what, Paul? Thank you for your time. I know that it's important. I made them drive across town to come have coffee with me, and they think that my time is important. I taught them how to treat me by the way I treated myself. We, treat, we teach other people all the time. What do you think you are teaching people by your behaviors? If you have a hard time saying no, <laughs> then you might get asked to do a lot of stuff, but you're also being inconvenienced, or you're, you're inconvenienced yourself, you're disappointing yourself, you're missing out on opportunity for yourself. If you start saying no at certain times, risking disappointing them, then they see your time as valuable because you see your time as valuable. Your limited energy is valuable. So we teach others how to treat us by the way we treat ourselves. Really important concept, I really like it. Huh, look at that. I should probably pay attention to my PowerPoints more. Admitting your mistakes tend to make more trustworthy. We already did that one. Here we go. You've tried and failed. The lesson here is never try again. Any idea who said that? <laughs> Good parenting advice. <laughs> oh man, nope. That's who said it right there. Homer Simpson. You know, parenting, Bart, you've tried and failed. The lesson here is never try again. It's a joke, okay, for those, it's a joke. Ah, uh, where are we at? Finally, oh, being perfect doesn't mean that things won't go wrong. I think we talked, touched on this last time. You can live perfectly. You can never break the law. You can drive the speed limit. You can always, you know, hands at 10 and 2. You can always be just fine. And that's no guarantee of safety, right? Because you got the other guy riding a bike who might run into you mess you up. Other people's mistakes and failures influence us. That's the painful piece of, of life. Wish it was not so. Uh, it's okay to disappoint people. Told you that. Let's end on this one. Uh, growth means change and change means risk. Stepping from the known to the unknown. C.S. Lewis says, we choose a known hell over an unknown heaven. The knowledge, the unknown, oftentimes is the scariest part of it. 
And it might be better, but we don't have a guarantee. We don't know. We can't be certain. So we don't like to risk. We often hold on to what we know because it's a sure thing. Because it's a sure thing. It's the woman on the challenge course who um, told me that I scared the daylights out of her because I treated her nicely. She was in a recovery group. She'd been you know, sexually abused. And um, this is the second time on the course. And she came up there to watch me again because I, my kindness scared, scared her to death because she knows how to relate to unhealthy men. She knows how to be around them. Those are comfortable. That's why she tends to find a lot of them. <laughs> but kind men are incredibly scary. It was the unknown for her. And so she was stepping into that unknown and saying, I'm going to see what this is like. And man, this is just weird. I kind of like it, but it's also kind of scary at the same time. And so you have to sit in that. You have to risk that. You have to experience that before it becomes internalized, before her self-confidence in that area grows and changes. So choose a known hell over an unknown heaven. Stepping from the known to the unknown. Questions at all? Doing good on time here. Thoughts? Deep spiritual insights? Then, ladies and gentlemen, I think I will um, end us in prayer. And then we will go home. Next week we're going to be talking about, oh yeah, conflict. How to have good, healthy conflict. What good fighting looks like. Anyone interested? Again, if we've never been taught how to have a fight, would you like to learn? Yeah. Would that be interesting? Did you know that learning how to fight is a, fighting is a learned skill? What did you learn from your parents? Don't answer that. Okay. <laughs> and do you want to repeat that in your home? We learn how to fight. So let's talk about that next week. And failures, when I make a mistake, my wife tends to be upset with me, which leads to conflict, or when she makes a mistake, which happened once back in 95. Um, since then, it hasn't happened a lot, but it often leads, led, led to conflict. So we're going to talk through some of that and how to play some of that out. Yeah? That, that whole thing of um, closing your eyes, that was kind of like a little experiment in risk and trust, and the end result was kind of a little bit of grace, right? A little bit. I want you to be able to, again, experience it here. I want you to know what it feels like. Grace can only be experienced. We can understand it. Yeah. I think a person can understand it, but they don't truly experience it until they kind of step into that place. And that's what it's for. Again, trust. You can say, I trust this chair all day long, but do you truly trust it? If you talk about it, no. You trust it when you sit in it. So it takes that action step. So let's pray, ladies and gentlemen, if we can. Father in heaven, again, you are a good God, and it is um, humbling to know that even in our sinful and our selfish state, that you somehow decided to love me, to love those here, Lord, I, I admit that I don't understand it. 
I don't truly understand it of what would motivate you to do that, why you would do that. And I admit that I'm still learning how to live in that grace. I pray that I will learn how to have my actions follow that belief so that I can live in the freedom that you've provided for me. I pray the same for each person here. I recognize the burdens and the pain from our past choices. I would ask that your presence be known, be felt, be experienced this week in ways that has never happened before. Thank you that you are a loving God. May you be praised and in your holy name. Amen.